Today's scripture is um, Samuel 2, Hannah's prayer. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Thank you, Renee. If you haven't already done so, uh, go ahead and open up your copy of the scriptures to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And before we spend some time in this text, let's go ahead and spend some time in prayer, uh, particularly uh, praying for Pete and Cassie McMillan this morning. Pete is preaching uh, at uh, Mayhill Baptist Church in Mayhill, New Mexico. And uh, so let's go ahead and turn to the Lord in prayer now. God, you have been so kind to pour out your, your blessing on our congregation. You've allowed us to live life with so many wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ, and Pete and Cassie are uh, two examples of that. And so, Father, I pray that as Pete opens the scriptures this morning, that your church at Mayhill Baptist would be edified and built up, and that you would be seen and your son would be glorified and that you would move in powerful and unexpected ways through his preaching. Father, I pray for congregations all across our city as well. Uh, we know that they are being served by men and women, uh, believers who are convinced uh, that Jesus is alive and who minister out of the strength of the Spirit. And so I pray that you would just pour out revival and renewal on each congregation in the city today. 
Father, I pray that you would uh, save souls and that our neighbors would know that there is a God in heaven and that we relate to you not by works of our own righteousness, but through the righteousness of Christ. Father, I pray that as we examine this song that Hannah composed in worship to you, that we would become just as enamored with the great reversal you in your holiness are working in the world. You take down the mighty who trust in their might and you exalt those who know that they're weak and rely on you. So Father, I pray that that truth would just sink deep into each one of our hearts this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. In one of the most memorable stories of the entire Bible, a Syrian military commander by the name of Sisera is leading his armies in battle against the tribes of Israel. This is just a short time before the events in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel. And in the heat of one of these battles, Sisera finds himself separated from his cohort and he seeks refuge in the tent of a woman he assumes is his ally. The woman ends up being one of the most creative and ultimately terrifying individuals in the entire Bible, as those of you who are familiar with this story know. She gives him some warm milk and she encourages him to lie down and take a hard-earned nap. And as he softly snores, she takes a mallet and a tent peg and drives the tent peg through his skull. Israel's armies are delivered and the people have peace all through the bravery and the ingenuity of a housewife. Or I guess a tent wife. I don't know what the right term is. The woman's name is Jael. Uh, do you know what that name means? Jael. It means mountain goat. How lovely. <laughs> uh, like an ibex, a mountain goat. It refers to the herds of majestic animals grazing on the hillsides throughout the Middle East. In fact, they are still there in abundance to this very day. Israel boasts the largest herds of Nubian ibex in the world. Uh, these are animals famous for jousting with their massive horns. And if you go on the internet and you look for pictures of these Nubian ibex, ibexes, I don't know what the plural is of ibex, uh, you'll see their horns, they're comically huge. We think of goats, at least I think of a goat. I'm a little bit scared of goats. I'm not very familiar with them, but I also don't... I don't think of them as these amazing creatures. You know, they're kind of silly looking to me. Uh, but the Nubian ibex is anything but silly. It's a magnificent, beautiful animal whose prowess in one-on-one -on -one combat symbolized by the horns on the top of their head. So Jael, this mountain goat of a woman, <laughs> I'm sorry, had symbolically taken a horn, this tent peg, and gained the victory over her opponent. A woman, a housewife, standing in triumph over the most powerful man in the entire region, 
like a muscular mountain ibex who had just taken its place as the alpha of the herd. You know, I can't, th- I, I can't help but thinking that Hannah knew about Jael and respected her as a great heroine of the faith. Because when Hannah wishes to praise God for her own triumph, for her own experience of God's answered prayer, she frames this prayer, this song, in similar terms. Now, my copy of the Bible, my translation that, I'm, that I've got in front of me here, it just kind of glosses right over it because uh, translators have to make decisions about what might make sense to you as an English-speaking reader. Uh, but let me just, uh, at verse 1, let me just show you this. At verse 1, at the very beginning of the song, and then in verse 10, at the end of the song, there is this, uh, this envelope structure that, that, that encapsulates the entire poem. So let me read verse 1 using the concrete terminology found in the original Hebrew. My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth opens wide toward my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She says, my horn. Uh, And the image is supposed to invoke that triumphant animal standing over its opponent. In verse 10, it's the same thing. God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What's Hannah doing with this song? What is she doing in her prayer to, the, to, to God? What's the deal with the horn? Here's what she's doing. Hannah is boldly bragging on God. She's saying, anybody who tries to come after me, anybody who is my opponent, anybody who is my enemy is going to be on the ground because God has exalted me. I am himself has made me the top goat. That's what she's saying. Last week we talked about what it means to be desperate for God. Today we're going to talk about the reasons why we ought to brag on God. I hope you find occasion for both this week, that you find time to engage in the practice of fasting and mourning and repentance and desperate seeking of God's face, and that you see him high and lifted up and worthy of praise, and that you find a reason to boast in God this week, to brag on God. Why should you brag on God? It's because of what you might call his onlyness. His onlyness. He's the only one like him. That's what Hannah means in verse 2 when she says, there is none holy like the Lord. He is only. He's the only one. He's the only Lord. He's the only creator. He's the only judge. He's only. So what I want to do today is show you from this song how God is only, how he's the only one worth bragging on. And first of all, notice with me from verses 1 through 3, we must praise God, we must brag on God for his onlyness because he saves me. Because he saves me. In this song, Hannah borrows from some of the stock imagery found in places like Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32, sections of scripture I'm sure she knew well. But she takes these truths that that all of God's people must have known uh, something about, and she makes them her own personal testimony of salvation. God is only, God is worthy of praise because he saves me. Hannah says, my heart is exalted in the Lord. I rejoice in your salvation. And I think it's really important for us to point out that God's salvation is personal and it's individual and it's the occasion for Hannah's song of praise in the first place. He saves me. 
She isn't praising God because he generically answers prayer. She isn't praising God because he generically loves the world. She isn't praising God because he is generically good. She is praising God, bragging on God, because he had heard her prayer and had rescued her from the hand of the oppressor. She was exalting the onlyness of God because he had saved her. It was personal. Well, let's break this down. In verse 1, it's the salvation of the Lord that enables Hannah to triumph over the enemy. She says, my mouth derides my enemies. Literally, my mouth is open wide against my enemies. It's debatable what exactly Hannah means when she says that, but it seems to me that she's invoking the imagery of this animal competition, you know, just sort of like the, the mountain goats are bashing their heads against one, one another, and one of them is the victor and stands triumphant over the other, and, and she's kind of pulling that same type of imagery through. My mouth is open towards my enemies. It's like my teeth are, are bared toward my enemies because God had rescued her. God had hurt her. Then look at verse 2. God had saved her, and, and, and there's literally no one else that could have done that. Nobody else could have saved her, uh, and no one else can snatch that salvation away. God, there's no one beside you. You're the only one. In the ancient Near East, uh, the average person recognized uh, the authority, the power, and the prestige, not of one God, but of many gods, and sometimes they would set up a sort of a pantheon of idols in their home in a little shrine, and they would put them all next to each other. They would be beside one another. And uh, the, the testimony of Scripture is that there is no one beside God. Like, there's nobody next to him. I am is the only one in his class. There are no gods before him or beside him. There are no other gods in his presence. And since God's the only God and the only one who can save, then there's no reason for any human being, if we read on, or any other creature to brag on themselves. Talk no more so very proudly, she says. And then the sweetest thing of all at the end of verse 3. Because the only God had rescued her individually, personally, then even the reality that I am is a God of knowledge who weighs the actions of men is for her, it's not a source of dread, it's a source of joy. It's a source of comfort and rest. Recently, an abuse survivor and attorney, Rachel Den Hollander and her husband Jacob, published a paper for the Evangelical Theological Society that illustrates that this can be the case, how, how this can be the case, how God's judgment, how God's justice, which for, for us so often is so terrifying, can actually be a source of joy and healing and comfort rather than an occasion for dread. If you are familiar with that name, uh, Miss, Mrs. Uh, Den Hollander was one of the first gymnasts to accuse Larry Nasser of USA Gymnastics of sexual abuse, and she's been an advocate for abuse survivors ever since. And she's a, a believer. She and her husband wrote this paper, and, and they show how the biblical doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, the idea that God uh, poured out his wrath on, on Jesus on the cross in place of sinners, and how that doctrine of the substitutionary atonement provides a great source of comfort for survivors of abuse. 
She says uh, one of the struggles that a, a abuse survivors face is that their community and, and the people around them, they don't take their cries for justice seriously. And, and, and they point out, and the Bible teaches, the cross of Christ demonstrates that God is the righteous judge who is going to weigh the thoughts and actions of all men, and he's going to pour out his righteous wrath against sin. God is so just, uh, committed to justice that instead of pretending that evil doesn't exist, God actually takes the punishment for sin upon himself. He takes it that seriously. See, what Hannah expresses here in the second half of verse 3 is a terrifying truth. I am is a God of knowledge. By him, actions are weighed. There's nothing that you and I could do that escapes the all-seeing gaze of the almighty God. He, he, is the, he, he is the one who sees it all. He knows it all. He doesn't have to figure it out. He doesn't have to take the evidence and examine the evidence. He, he just knows it. All of it is naked and open to him with whom we have to, uh, before him with whom we have to do. And therefore, while I might be able to escape the judgments of God, or the, I'm sorry, the judgments of men, I'll, I'll never escape the judgments of God. I'll never escape the evaluations of God Almighty. And so what that means is that when God says to the victim of abuse or of oppression, don't get revenge. Vengeance is mine. He's not uttering an empty platitude. He is serious about that. And that justice is going to fall. It's going to fall terrible and unyielding on everyone who sins. He hears your cry for justice. He knows what they did. And while the courts and the communities can't get you that justice, he will. And yet, for the one who says, he, the only God, saved me, and I rejoice in his salvation, we can know that that justice, that righteous wrath, no longer hangs above our head, but has already fallen on the body of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. But folks, in order for us to know that, we need to be able to say, I brag on God, I rejoice in God, because he saved me. And so I have a question. Can you brag on God because he saved you? Are you able to say, I have the victory over sin. I have the victory over the devil. I have a victory over the world because my horn, my strength, my salvation is exalted in the Lord. Now, I, I know I've struck this particular chord a lot in recent days, but I think it's just so important. And there, there are a lot of you in this room who, who may not be able to rejoice in the salvation of the Lord and the knowledge that you personally believe that Jesus died for you and that you are a child of the King of Kings. Maybe you can't say that I rejoice in God's salvation because you really don't think you need it. You're not worried about a God of knowledge who weighs the actions of men because you don't think your actions fall short when they are weighed in the balance. And I'm telling you, you can't, you can't rejoice in God's salvation when you don't think you need saving, but you'd better wake up. You can always find people who are going to tell you that it's not that bad. You can go to the bookstore. You can find nice little books with crosses on them that seem very Christian, and they will tell you these nice things that God is this nice therapist who will help you feel better about your life. But folks, how is that going to help us when the books are opened and judgment begins. 
What about the evil that we've perpetrated? What about our greed? What about the hate that we've had in our hearts toward our brother? No, folks, we need a Savior. We need someone to rescue us from this judgment. Yes, you need someone to rescue you from this judgment. You, old man who has this wonderful family that all loves you and they, they just are so thankful for you. You, young woman who has this charming smile and you can make people laugh and, and you're just so likable. You, young person who haven't made a commitment yet, whether you're going to believe in Jesus or not, you need to be rescued from this judgment. And you don't have all the time in the world that you think you might. You, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. You say, Jake, who do you think you are? <laughs> but in all seriousness, if that's the kind of question that you would ask, that's the kind of approach that you would take to your own status before God, then you're being foolish. I mean, not to be unkind, but that's foolish. Because the truth of the matter is, when the God of knowledge weighs your actions, it isn't going to matter if your preacher is the biggest hypocrite in the world. Like, there's not going to be an asterisk next to your name that says, okay, you didn't believe in Jesus, you didn't give your life to Christ, but it's only because you, all the Christians that you knew were hypocrites. It's not going to fly. I'm not trying to make light of something serious. I, I'm, I'm trying to help you see that that way of thinking is distracting you from something very serious. Some of you can't say he saved me because you don't think you need it. Some of you can't say he saved me because for you it's just too good to be true. Like you, you can barely, you, you just can't believe that God would do something so kind. You don't so much doubt the goodness and mercy of God as you doubt his goodness and his mercy toward you. You see him blessing others but you're stuck looking at your own life and thinking, well that's great for Hannah. She prayed that she was going to to have a child and then God gave her a child. Good for her. I prayed for a child. No, God didn't. He told me no. And you find yourself questioning the goodness of the Lord. Or you think there's a bunch of stuff you have to do in order to get God to like you better. Like, I better obey more of God's commands. I've messed up so many times, and I've asked forgiveness so many times. God has run out of patience, and there's no more rescue for me. I just can't believe it. I don't have that confidence that I can rejoice in the salvation of God. And folks, there's a fine line here. Those who think that they can play the system and, and go through some sort of religious process in order to trick God into saving them are going to find that God is not mocked. But on the other hand, for the broken who beat their breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, God is good. God's arms are open wide for you. God's hand is open to you, and he says, come to the cross Bow before me, believe in Jesus, and you will have the, the, the right to be called the child of God. Maybe you're just not sure. You, you just never move past the doubt or the confusion. You're having a hard time saying he saved me because you just never settled the question in your mind. And I just want you to know that it's God's desire for you to live out of a confidence that you really do have the Savior, that, that he saved you, not just some people out there. If you have doubts, it's much better for you to find a trusted friend who knows the Lord and, and tell him or her about it so that you can be restored. I mean, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Everyone goes through seasons of doubt and difficulty. We all walk through those dark valleys. And I just want you to know that if the, the lamp of your faith is flickering and smoldering and smoking, 
we, our desire here at our, our church is not to send you out into the cold so that the lamp goes out completely. No, we want to help you fan that into flame again. You need to know that we want to help you find that confidence in Christ so that you can brag on God's onlyness and say, He saved me. What is it about God's onlyness that makes us want to brag on Him? First of all, He saved me. Secondly, we want to brag on God's onlyness because He surprises the world. He saved me, He surprises the world. He surprises the world. Here's what I mean. God's ways, as we see beginning in verse 4, are totally, completely unexpected. They are totally unexpected. He upsets everything we think we know about the way that creation uh, operates. We think, this is the way that we think things are. We think in terms, that we, we think the world operates through these dynamics of power and strength and might. And, and, and that kind of rings true. I mean, if you take two animals and you put them in a cage together, and you kind of compel them to fight with one another, the animal that has the greater advantage is going to win that fight, whether that's through brute strength or uh, cleverness or some kind of venom or physical endurance or something like that. It's going to be the strong that survives. It's going to be the mighty who wins. And we think that life is this way across the board. So we struggle and we scrape to get more power and more influence. We we form a stronger network of relationships with more important people. We acquire more wealth. We get skills to achieve our desires or to impress other people or manipulate other people. We even use violence and the threat of violence to keep others in check. You might surprise yourselves how much you operate this way from day to day. I mean, this is the way that we live. You want to gain the upper hand over your opponent? You need to dominate them or outwit them or outlast them or just force your will upon them. You need to use leverage and power to gain the upper hand. This is the way that we just think the world works. In fact, uh, I'm not trying to score any points here, but just as by way of an illustration, this is what Donald Trump Jr. was talking about the other day. Here's what he said to his supporters. He said, we've been playing t-ball for half a century. While they're playing hardball and cheating, we've turned the other cheek... And I understand sort of the biblical reference. I understand the mentality, but it's gotten us nothing. It's gotten us nothing while we've ceded ground in every major institution in our country. Now, listen, I don't know if he even meant to to say that. And and I I don't really care. But here's, here's the point. What he was expressing is a mentality that's shared by almost everybody in the world. That's just what most people think. Turn the other cheek, that's gotten me nothing. The mighty dominate the weak. That's the way it is. But the problem with this approach to life, friends, listen to me, the problem is that it fails to take into account the existence of a creator God who is almighty and involved in the circumstances and the events of the world. We cannot live that way as believers, That is a huge miscalculation. And what we find in Scripture is that God is going to dramatically reverse this calculus. He might not do it right away, but he is going to do it. Look at verse 4, for example. example. The bows of the mighty are broken, literally shattered, but the feeble bind on strength. 
Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Did you catch the reversal there in God's acts? He brings down the proud. He lifts up the humble. He does this even in seemingly impossible ways. I mean, he takes a woman who could not have children, and he gives her, more, and he gives her children. By the way, this isn't exceptional. This is not an exceptional moment in the, the history of the Bible. This is all over the Bible. God does not want the proud to prevail. He wants the humble lifted up. Think about Isaiah 57, 15. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the hearts of the contrite. Or how about Proverbs 15, 25? The Lord tears down the house of the proud but maintains the widow's boundaries. James 4, 6 through 10. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. Coming back to Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, it's clear this isn't just Hannah's conviction. It is a very important lesson that God wants every single one of us to learn. And, and folks, I'm, the reason I'm pushing us on this is because we forget it when we walk out these doors. Matter of fact, I would argue what she expresses in verses 4 and following is actually the theological core of the entire book of 1 Samuel. This is everything. This helps you understand exactly what is going on in the lives of Saul and David. We're going to find that more and more. God is sovereign. He alone kills and makes alive. He reverses the pecking order of the world. He decimates the mighty. He's constantly lifting up the lowly in contrast with the way that most people think the world works. What gives him the right to do this? Verse 8, he is the creator. He's the one that set the world on top of its pillars. He's the one who made all of us. He has the right to set things up the way that he wants to set them up. This is what 1 Samuel is all about. The time of the judges, the time into which Hannah was born, into which she brought Samuel into the world, was a time of great chaos and, and uh, suffering and death because there's no king in the land, but everyone's doing that which is right in his own eyes. And then Saul comes on the scene, and he quickly shows that he, he, he wants to take his place among the kings of the earth and be a tyrant who doesn't trust the Lord, and he finds out what God does to somebody who wants to be that way. And then the rest of the book, we're going to find out uh, that that God is going to reverse the values of what this world sees as, as mighty and as successful and as wise and good. He's going to bring down the impressive, and he's going to exalt the humble. God's onlyness leads to the exuberant exaltation of his people because he surprises the world. And, you know, for the proud, for the haughty, for those of us who rely on our own might, that's kind of a scary, unpleasant surprise. This is one of the reasons why a time of fasting and repentance and desperation is so important. Because our natural bent is to be proud, to be self-reliant. And a time of fasting reminds us that we need the Lord. One of the things I'm frankly concerned about as a pastor is that I wonder how many of you hear preaching about weakness and you find yourself a little bit disgusted. 
like weakness. Well, shouldn't we be strong for the Lord? I'm supposed to be weak? No thanks. And by the way, I'm talking primarily to the men in the room here. Women, you need to apply this to yourselves too, but I'm going to talk to the men a little bit because I'm a man, all right? So we work long hours, we lift heavy things. Men who started with nothing have, have carved out a life for yourself, a little kingdom. Men who have very strategically built a life around the things that you're competent in. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not telling you that God wants you to become weak. I'm telling you that you are weak. I'm telling you the issue is not your strength or your power. The issue is the illusion that we're all perpetrating on ourselves and those around us. What a tragedy that each and every one of us, if we live long enough, we are going to lose our hair and our teeth and our ability to walk or drive, and yet by the time this takes place, that pride is so entrenched that everybody else can see that we're weak, but we can't. I know you know that you've got weakness. I know that. I'm just saying it's better for us to lean into that than to strut around and act like it isn't there. It's not going to bring joy to you. It's not going to, it's going to make everybody else miserable. And, and frankly, God opposes it. So men, let's be everything God created us to be, but let's remember that even the big men, the important, impressive men of the world, they are small in comparison with God. This woman whose husband didn't get her who was mistaken for a drunk, has a lot to teach us about a God who reverses the order of the world because he is the only one. And so when we decide he's not the only one, I'm going to be one too. And we say, I'm going to take my place on the throne of my life. It's not going to go well. So it's time for us to get off of that throne and put God where he belongs in our lives. Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And brag not on ourselves but on our God because he's the only one, the only one who saves me, the only one who surprises the world in this way. And in the third place, notice with me that we can glory in him not only because he saves me, not only because he surprises the world, but because thirdly, he sends his Messiah. He sends his Messiah. Look at verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them will he thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. What a remarkable declaration of Hannah's faith. On the one hand, the adversaries of the Lord, these false messiahs, will be broken to pieces. You can look for that later on in 1 Samuel in the case of Eli and his sons and later on in the, in, in the case of Saul. Even today, there are false messiahs, false Christs, fake heroes who draw the attention and even the worship of the masses, claiming to be a sort of superman to rescue humanity from its ills, and all who exalt themselves in this way, everyone who puts himself up as a messiah is going to be shattered. That's what this verse is saying. And yet in the midst of one of the darkest seasons in history, in the history of God's people, a time of anarchy, a time of suffering when the mighty could destroy the unsuspecting with complete impunity. I mean, read the book of Judges and you'll see this happen over and over again. A time when the high priest himself couldn't even recognize an act of piety. When his sons were prowling around the tabernacle praying on worshipers. 
a woman who had suffered great grief, could pray and praise in hope of a day when the real king would arrive. Keep in mind, Israel had never had a king like the surrounding nations. There was no royal dynasty. In fact, any time any individual had tried to assert himself in this way, it ended in bloodshed. And yet Hannah was familiar enough with the writings of Moses to know that God intended to rule Israel and in fact the entire earth through a human region of his choosing. The conclusion of her prayer is an expression of great faith that God was about to do that very thing. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power or exalt the horn of his anointed. In other words, the final and ultimate reason why Hannah is able to brag on God is not because of something that he did, but something that he was about to do. So whether she intended to do so or not, Hannah is uttering a prophetic word here. She's saying, it's, it, she's saying, this is what God's about to do, and it's her son Samuel who will grow to become the kingmaker. He's going to anoint two kings, Saul, whose reign starts off on the right foot but quickly devolves into something ugly, and David, the man after God's own heart. Hannah praises God for his victory. She brags on God for his onlyness because of the Messiah that he is going to send you know, if you're like me and you grew up familiar with the stories that we're going to find in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, Eli and his sons, uh, Saul and Jonathan, David and Goliath, etc., you're probably used to reading these stories a certain way. You know, uh, Samuel was young, we're going to read in a few chapters, and, and yet he had a relationship with God and he, he was sensitive to God's will and he listened to God. I should be like Samuel, I should listen to God. Even if I'm young. Or Eli was not a good parent. He didn't discipline his sons. I should discipline my children and be better than Eli. That's, that's what I should take away. Or David was brave. He, he took five smooth stones and he killed the giant. I should be brave and I should go out and kill the giant. And even better, if I can find five principles to coordinate with the five smooth stones that will help me think that I'm even more spiritual. And if I can think of five specific life principles that match those five stones, all the better. And like that's the way that we read these stories. But what Hannah, Hannah's prayer is evidence that if that is how we're reading 1 Samuel, then we're reading it wrong. It's not about something that we're supposed to do. It's, it's, about, it's not about the choices that we make. It's not about the actions that we take or the characteristics that we exhibit. It is all, it is all about who we are going to follow. Who is going to be the king? Who is going to be our Messiah? Who is going to be our Christ? The Hebrew word translated anointed is Mashiach, Messiah. In Greek, if you translate it into Greek, it would be Christos, Christ. Hannah knew by faith that when God worked to bring about salvation in her life and in the life of the nation, it wasn't going to be through her actions. It was going to be through his anointed king, whom he would send. And so, folks, we're meant to spend our time reading Samuel, believing this claim and looking for the Messiah. Well, Eli wasn't the Messiah. Obviously, he failed. Maybe Saul's the Messiah. Nope, Saul's not the Messiah. That's pretty clear because of the way he lives. Okay, here comes David. He's, maybe he's the Messiah. Okay, we're getting closer. We're getting warmer. But even David falls way short. 
And so one of the occasions for praise that we're going to find repeated through this book is that where Eli fails and where Saul fails and where David falls short, where I personally cannot measure up, Jesus of Nazareth meets the standard. And it's through Jesus that the reverse upside-down values of the kingdom of God take on their fullest form. I imagine this is why uh, in Luke chapter 1, a a passage that we referenced earlier in the service, when Mary wants to praise God when she gets pregnant, she borrows the same language and ideas from Hannah's song. Because she was making the connection. Jesus was going to be the anointed one. The Messiah, the king, not wearing a crown of gold symbolizing power, but wearing a crown of thorns. Not seated on a lofty throne, but hoisted on a cross. Not whipping his creatures into submission, but submitting to the lash himself. Not in worldly power of violent destruction, but in the power of an indestructible life. God's going to reverse everything, and he's going to send his Messiah. And through the suffering that he experiences on the cross the humble are going to have victory. And it's through that victory, through this exaltation as the slaughtered Messiah, slain and raised for our justification that we triumph ourselves. By the way, this is yet another reason why we fast. I was eating lunch this week with some other pastors and I just brought up, hey, we're talking about fasting at our church. What do you guys teach your congregation about fasting? And one of the guys said something that I just thought was amazing. He said, I fast to remind my appetites that they have had their day. But I now belong to Jesus and I am no longer enslaved to my desires. In other words, for him, fasting and prayer isn't just a time of mourning and repentance. It's a time of victory and celebration that we have gained the victory. What a way to brag on God, to rejoice in his onlyness because he saved me because he surprises the world, and because he sends the Messiah, the Christ, the one who gave himself for me and rose again. Would you pray with me now? Father, I just want to thank you for being our God. Father, we ask that you would behold our hearts and see and turn each cursed idol out that dares to rival thee. Lord, if there's anything in our lives that rival your onlyness, any pride, any will worship, any lack of trust or confidence in you, I pray that you would expose it and By the power of your spirit, I pray that you would root it out. Lord, I pray that you would cause each person within the sound of my voice, myself included, to each of us humble ourselves before your mighty throne and, and before your Christ. Jesus, you alone are the king, and and so we ask that you would forgive us for trying to climb up on that throne so often. God, I pray that you would cause us to start out this year bragging not in ourselves not in the accomplishments of humanity but in the work of Christ on the cross I pray that you would enable us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him knowing that Jesus your yoke is easy and your burden is light 
God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.